Over the course of the, uh, the sermon today, I'm actually going to tell you five stories. I'm going to tell you a story about uh, a lonely man and his best friend. And then I'm going to unpack the story of the day that we're reading from the Bible. Then I'm going to tell you the story about uh, a teacher, a second grade teacher, who speaks words to one of her students that were life transforming. Then I'm going to tell you a story about a pastor, a prostitute, and a party. And I know you want me to get to that one now, but you got to, you're going to have to wait. And then I'm going to tell you the story about an elderly man. You see, I'm not elderly, so this means he's even older than I am. Got that? All right. Uh, and someone who was probably, a young man who was probably 60 years younger than him. And uh, so now you know where we're going. You get to anticipate at least a little bit. But I want to, uh, uh, the story I want to read is from the second chapter of Genesis. The uh, Genesis writer, um, it, it's really, it's interesting. And, and, and I think it's important to see Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as uh, two different stories. They're talking about the same thing, but the two stories are approaching the whole business of creation from just a little bit different angle. The, the, the first chapter of just a, a broader view, if you will. And then the second chapter is the focus on, uh, really it's the focus on the creation of human beings and uh, the process that God went through, because that's interesting. There is a process that happens in this, this uh, chapter. It isn't an all-at-once thing. That God's in, God, God's working here. And there's, uh, yeah, you'll see it, I think, if you don't. I will be pointing it out to you. So we're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to begin at uh, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food in the middle of the garden. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now we're going to skip down... To verse 18. God creates more stuff in the story and rivers and 
kind of boring. So we're going to skip down. Well, not when God was doing it. It would have been fascinating to be there when he was doing it. But, yeah, this, this is best. Sorry, God. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. <clears throat> for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. They will become one. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. <clears throat> Pray with me a moment. God, would you, would you give us some insight today on, on, on what this story might mean for us? what it might mean for us personally, what it mean, might mean for us as a church. Uh, bless our time as we, uh, as we try to sort that out. Amen. So what I discovered uh, uh, this week, early this week, is that as a congregation, and you probably all know this, as a congregation, we say on our website, quote, we are designed for community. And the we obviously means people. We are designed for community. Indeed, we believe the need for supportive, encouraging, involved relationships with others is a deeply felt human need. And God calls his church to minister to that need. As human beings, therefore, we are created for community. God built this need into the very design of the human spirit and psyche. Psychologists, sociologists, spiritual advisors, all are unanimous in their agreement that healthy living includes healthy, intimate relationships. And not merely of the superficial variety, but the kinds of relationships that move to the depth of good, healthy family. The, the kind of relationships that say, you belong here. You are welcome here. You are family. There's always a place for you. You are important to us. You are cared about. You are loved. You belong. No exceptions. As human beings, we all need places where we belong, and we all need people to whom we belong. We all long for a sense of home. So there's the first story. 
Um, I'm sure some of you have seen a favorite movie of mine. It's called Castaway. The premise involves Tom Hanks as a fellow who finds himself far from home and all alone, shipwrecked on a deserted island, and he's there for a long, long period of time. This experience of prolonged solitude drives him to the brink of insanity. At one point in the story, um, he paints a face on a volleyball that is washed up to shore. He calls his new companion Wilson because the Wilson Company is the manufacturer of the particular volleyball that has washed up on the show on the on the shore. And in his loneliness, he has conversations with a volleyball. Probably says, thought I told you to go over the net and fall to the ground before somebody hit you, but you didn't. He has conversations. That, that's his best friend. He discovers the truth that as human beings, we are designed for community. As human beings, we all need places where we belong. We all need people to whom we belong. But there's nothing new about that truth because I say it is as old as the second chapter of the Bible. I think it's primarily what the second chapter of the Bible is about. Again, you, you, you know the story, but let's, let's review it. God creates this beautiful garden-like planet with a sun to light and warm the day and a moon and stars to light the night. Then God forms snow-capped mountains, rolling hills, grassy meadows, rivers and lakes and oceans. It is a wondrous and beautiful place. God stocks the waters with fish and he fills the skies with birds of incredible color and vibrant sound. Then God calls forth the creatures of the land, animals of such variety and uniqueness that only a God could have thought them up. The Creator looks over all that He had made, and He pronounces it good, even very, very, very good. But according to the second chapter of Genesis, apparently not complete. Creator's Work is not finished. God reaches down to the earth, gently touches the dust of the ground with the tip of a divine finger, and forms what will be the first human. And the garden grows silent. As the birds perch quietly in the trees, as the animals all stand attentive and erect, as even the fish in the streams pause in anticipation, as the Creator draws close to this chunk of clay and breathes into its nostrils the breath of life. Still, the Creator's work is not finished. As God observes the man at work in the garden, there comes that moment when the creature says, there's something wrong with this picture. It still isn't right. It's still 
incomplete. God sees loneliness, and he says, it's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a partner. So, God introduces the man to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Maybe they can minister to the man's loneliness. Maybe they can feel the gaping hole in his life. God even gives the man a special place and role in relationship to all of the other creatures. He gives the man the responsibility of naming them, all of them. So the man calls the bear, bear. He calls the horse, Horse, help me out now. I want to hear you. I want to hear you. He calls the sparrow. sparrow. He calls the canary. He calls the eagle. He calls the lion. No, 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 no. Musafasa, Mufasa. The lion is, that's the Greek or the Hebrew word for lion. I'm pretty sure. Okay. So, one by one, they're all named. But in giving the man that naming responsibility, here's what those ancient people understood. When God gave the man that naming responsibility, God was demonstrating that the man and the others actually were not equals. That the man's position in the garden was one of oversight and responsibility. The man was the caretaker of the garden and all of the creatures of the garden, they were not his equals and only an equal. Only a partner can minister to your loneliness. Only a partner for Adam could complete the picture. Listen again to the rest of the story. But for Adam, no suitable partner was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman, another human, from the rib he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Get this. A partner was created. That's what the story is about. A partner was created an equal, another human, to fill the hole in the man's life and to minister to his loneliness. And in that moment, the first community was born. Call it the community of marriage. And then they came the community of family, followed by the community of extended family, and eventually the community of different families coming together in partnership as equals to love and care for one another. And I want you to notice one more thing, because I think it's important to the story. In the Genesis story, this need for community came before the first sin. Okay, don't miss that. We're still in chapter 2. Sin doesn't enter the picture in chapter 3. The loneliness of the man was not the result of sin. No, this loneliness, <laughs> it was somehow part of the original design. And then God rethought it. 
Think of that. Created lonely, created lonely, so that we would long for and seek out others, partners, and equals with whom we would come together in the communities of love and care and faith. As human beings, we are designed for community. The need for community, for human contact, it is woven somehow into our DNA. As human beings, we all need places where we belong. We all need people to whom we belong. And that's true of everyone around us. And the church of Jesus Christ is called by God to be that kind of place and to be that kind of people. In his book, Love Beyond Reason, John Ortberg tells the story about the whisper test. I love this one. He quotes an older woman remembering a poignant moment in her childhood way back when. Says the woman, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A, a little girl with a misshapen lip crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. Today they do wonders with that condition, but not then. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside of my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard by name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady, just made for second grade. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn, and this is how it worked says the little girl, or now a woman. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. We all need places where we belong. We all need people to whom we belong. And the followers of Christ are called by God to be that place and to be that people. Story four. In his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, Tony Campolo has a wonderful story that happened while he was in Hawaii for a speaking engagement. I don't get invited to Hawaii for speaking. I just come to Ames. <laughs> Suffering from a severe case of jet lag, 
Tony found himself wide awake at 3 a.m. wandering about the streets near Waikiki until he finally found a sleazy little 24-hour diner. He walked in, sat down at the counter, ordered a coffee and a donut. After a few minutes, the place filled with eight or nine prostitutes, noisy, provocatively dressed, talking crudely. They sat on either side of Tony at the counter. He was about to hurry out of the place when he overheard the woman sitting next to him say to one of the others, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. The response from her friend was less than enthusiastic. So what do you want from me, a birthday party? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to Tony. Why do you have to be so mean? I was, just, I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it's my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When Tony Campolo heard that he made a decision, he stayed. When the women left, he asked Harry, the owner of the diner, if the one who was having the birthday came every night. Yeah, said Harry. That's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night, same time. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday, Tony told him. What do you say you and I do something about that. What do you think about throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? Harry thought it was a great idea, offered to bake the cake. So Tony got the decorations, showed up the next night at 2.30 a.m. They decorated the diner with bright colored crepe paper everywhere, hung up a cardboard sign that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. Somehow, word of the event got out to the streets, and by 3.15, the place was filled with prostitutes. Or as Tony Campolo describes the scene, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. Tony had everyone ready, and they screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! I'll let Tony tell the rest of the story in his words. He says, Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her, and as she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang, Happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after what seemed an endless few seconds, that's what Harry did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, 
I mean, is, is it okay if I kind of... What I want to ask you is, is it, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, Sure, it's okay, Agnes. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, carrying it like, uh, carrying it, like it was the Holy Grail. She walked slowly toward the door. Somebody opened it, and she went out. As we all stood there motionless, she was gone. When the door closed, says Tony, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her well-being. I prayed that her life would change, her circumstances would change, that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. No, there's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Tony Campolo goes on to suggest that if we read the Jesus story on the pages of the New Testament, we might just discover that is precisely the kind of church Jesus came to establish. Works for me. We all need places where we belong, and we all need people to whom we belong. And the church of Jesus Christ is called by God to be that kind of place and to be that kind of people community. We are all made for it. We all need it. And as the church, we come together and we covenant with one another to provide community for all, to provide a place where belonging is the natural and normal way of things. No exceptions, no walls, where belonging is as natural and normal as breathing. Final story. Kind of a personal, personal story, in a way. It was over 50 years ago. Uh, Dee and I were living in Southern California. I was serving an internship in a rather large church there. It was after my second year of seminary, before my final year of seminary, and it was a place of practical learning intern. If that sounds like gopher, 
that's part of what the job was. You just do what you're asked to do, do what you're told. To do. But you get to observe. Observe. You get to be involved in a, a ministry that's doing some special things. Well, one day I was um, told to go to the airport, be the Orange County Airport. Now it's John Wayne International Airport. I was told to go there to pick up uh, a man who would be speaking on Friday night and again on Saturday. It was supposedly a retreat, but we didn't go anywhere. Okay, but it was to be that atmosphere. The man I was to pick up, uh, his name uh, was E. Stanley Jones. And, uh, and apparently, I never heard of him, but apparently he was very well-known and a very well-known missionary. Um, he was a guy I would learn later um, who was a personal and close friend of Mahatma Gandhi. I would learn later that he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, didn't get it. I would learn later that in the months leading up to World War II, he was a personal emissary of Franklin Delano Roosevelt to the leaders of Japan in hopes to avert a war. I would learn later that he was claimed by Martin Luther King as one of King's mentors and particularly the person who led King on the way to a nonviolent movement. So that's the man I was picking up, and I had no clue who he was. I got to the airport. Pretty sure I had a sign. Probably said Dr. Jones. And, uh, and up walks this uh, little guy. I, I swear he was 5'8". He was 87 years old, white hair, and he was scheduled to speak four times at this retreat that we were supposed to have. And he's dressed in this black suit, uh, which looks like when he bought it, he was two inches taller. A wrinkled suit, suit, white shirt, and a thin black tie, white hair. And so I picked him up, and I have no clue what we talked about on the way back, because I was, I, I didn't know who I was meeting, but we talked. But so we get back, and this conference started, and. Um, I absolutely will never forget this. Two things I won't forget. I remember sitting uh, in the room where he was speaking, and I'd have been sitting about where you are, Samuel, and he would have been up here on a stool or a chair and uh, with a microphone, and he would speak, and he would speak very softly, very softly, the whole time almost monotone, very soft. He's 87 years old. But what I remember is being mesmerized by the wisdom I heard coming out of his mouth over and over and over again. 
words of wisdom. During one of the, those teachings, uh, he finished by telling a personal story that had just happened to him. This was the time in the uh, early 70s, late 60s. You know the turmoil from history, what was going on, the civil rights movement, the uh, protests against the Vietnam War. Um, eventually, there'd be Nixon's water. I mean, it's, it was a time of upheaval in our country. But one of the things that had happened in the very late 60s and carried into the early 70s was something called the Jesus Movement. There's a movie out called Jesus Revolution. It's sort of about that, okay? The Jesus Movement. And this movement was about a bunch of hippies, that's what they were, coming out of a drug culture and a do as you please, uh, free love, you know, just, right? Coming out of that kind of, coming to Jesus and having their lives transformed. It was an incredible movement. A lot of it was happening in Southern California when we were there. So anyway, E. Stanley Jones um, was at a conference um, and He'd heard about this Jesus movement. Remember, he's, he's a missionary. He'd been to India. He spent most of his years in India. But, he, but he'd heard of the Jesus movement. He, wanted, he was curious. He, want, he wanted to know more. So he asked someone, is it possible for me to meet one of these people? And so, um, uh, yeah, we can, we can arrange that. So I want you to picture the scene now as they sit across from one another on the table. And, uh, and I, can, I, I swear to you, I, there's no doubt in my mind, he had on a black frumpy suit, a white shirt, and a black narrow tie. I guarantee it. He, I think he carried one extra, and that's what, he, it's what he wore all the time. So he's sitting across from this... Uh, Young man, early 20s, long hair, full beard, T-shirt, faded jeans, no shoes, and they talk to one another. And they talk to one another for two, three hours, just the two of them at this table getting to know one another. E. Stanley is getting to know the young man's journey. He's getting to know the young man's faith. These are two very, very, very different people. At the end of the conversation, E. Stanley Jones looked at the young man and he said this with a twinkle in his eye. You belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. We belong to each other. Mic drop. Let's pray.